Everybody said amen. Amen. Thank you, Grace, for leading us in worship. And we have had a wonderful day in worship. We know that our theme for 2021 here at First Baptist is a journey of faith. And as we have said several times, it's not just a theme. It actually is our story. It encapsulates what life has been like for First Baptist Arlington for 150 years. It's been a journey of faith. And so during each season of 2021, we are exploring various facets of faith. And for the Advent season, our theme is, O Come, All Ye Faithful. And we are studying together the theology that is communicated through that beautiful Christmas carol, actually looking at the biblical um, material that undergirds the theology that is taught in that great carol, O Come, All Ye Faithful. So the lesson for today is Word of the Father, Now in Flesh Appearing. You'll recognize that phrase from one of the stanzas in that hymn. The text for us today is found in John 1. You've heard Josh already read the opening of John 1. We're going to begin in verse 14. It is the custom of our church when the gospel is being read that we stand and honor the Lord Jesus. So I invite you to stand with me as we hear this reading from the gospel. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about. When I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I want to commend you, first of all, for this Advent season. We've had some deep theological conversations already. Are y'all up for one more? Okay, so I want to talk to you today about the topic of Christology. The core question of Christology is, who do you say that I am? You may remember in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 16, Jesus was near Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, what is everyone saying about me? Who do they think I am? And the disciples offered various answers based upon the impressions of the people who had heard Jesus' teaching. Jesus finally, after he heard a few of those answers, he looked at these disciples and he said, who do you say that I am? That's the core question of Christology. What is Christology? It is the doctrine of Christ. It is the study of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I would submit to you this morning that that particular doctrine, that conversation is unprecedented in all other world religions. For example, there is no such thing as Mohammedology. 
There's no doctrine about the person of Muhammad. There's no Buddhaology. In Buddhism, there is no doctrine of Buddha. There's no Confuciusology. There is no doctrinal study of the person of Confucius. The, the reason for that is they are all but mere men. Jesus Christ is unique. There's something different about Jesus that causes us to have to pause and actually study the person of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he actually has an entire doctrine built around him because of his uniqueness. So if I may this morning, I wanna offer you just a brief history lesson. Some of this we've already talked about, but not all of you may have been here, so let me just catch us all up to date so that we can contextualize Christmas for us as Christians. In the first century, when Jesus lived on this earth, that era in Christian history is known as the apostolic era. It's the era of the apostles. It's the era of the eyewitnesses, the, the first generation Christians. Think about it. The apostle John, who wrote what we just read, didn't die until late in the AD 90s. So think about that. You're at the end of the first century and one of the apostles is still alive, as well as numerous eyewitnesses. Now the next era in Christian history, from AD 100 to AD 300, some 200 years, is, a, is an era of tremendous growth and expansion for the church across the ancient world. It was also characterized by times of great and intense persecution. The church grew in the major urban areas across the empire. They were primarily house churches gathered together, depending upon the community, in these major urban centers. But Christianity grew by the end of that era, AD 300, and it made its way all across both the east and the west of the Roman Empire. Around AD 300 or so, everything changes. Because after the death, of, or the, the, the resignation, if you will, the retirement of Diocletian, the empire was divided into four kingdoms and each one had their own mini emperor, if you will. Eventually though, the entire Roman empire was conquered by Constantine the Great. Now the reason that is such a pivotal uh, event in history in terms of our story is because Constantine made the decision in the early AD 300s that Christianity was going to be tolerated throughout the entire empire. It was no longer going to be persecuted. As a matter of fact, he himself would become a Christian and he would put favor upon the church. Christianity was not just tolerated, it was recognized, its land was given tax-exempt status. Think about that, that dates all the way back to the decision of a Roman emperor in the early 300s. Not only that, he blessed the church and he set the leaders of the church free to lead and grapple theologically with the great teachings of the church. He then also commissioned that churches be built on some of the most famous holy sites across the Roman Empire. 
So for example, if you go back to the early 300s, AD 325 to 330 or so, Constantine wanted churches constructed on places like the birthplace of Jesus or the place where Jesus was buried and resurrected from the dead or where some of the great apostles were buried. And so a church was constructed in the 300s in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. The church was named the Church of the Nativity. A church was constructed on the site where Jesus was buried and raised from the dead, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In Rome, once they discovered where Simon Peter was buried, where the Apostle Paul was buried, buried. He commissioned that churches be built there, the Church of St. Peter, the Church of St. Paul, right outside the walls where Paul was martyred. He built churches in, in his capital. He decided to rule the Roman Empire, not from Rome. Think about that. He moved the capital of the, of the empire from Washington, D.C. to Dallas. Think about that. What a, what a massive decision. No, he moved from Rome to what you and I today would know as Istanbul, Constantinople. And he decided to rule the Roman Empire from Constantinople. And every emperor after him would do the very same thing. They would rule the Roman Empire and never live in Rome. And so Constantine wanted all these churches built. He built churches in Constantinople, Hagia Sophia, the house of, 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 of wisdom. Here's what's fascinating. This is 2021. You can still go and see these churches. The Church of the Nativity, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Church of St. Peter, the Church of St. Paul. The, the, the Hagia Sophia has been converted into a mosque. It's in Turkey. Um, the original church in Rome, the Church of Christ it was called. Now it's dedicated to John the Baptist and the Apostle John, St. John Lateran. So these churches date all the way back to this era in Christian history. So it was, a, it was an incredible time. What a shift from, from what the church had experienced. Now, on top of all that, the theological development of the church was occurring once freedom was given. The theology had already been woven through the church, but now it was given full expression. It was codified, if you will. It was sharpened, it was more fully explained. So the emperor, Constantinople, that's where the, the empire had shifted that direction. The church had grown throughout the ancient world. And y'all remember we talked about this. These major urban areas, they grew from just house churches to where each one of the urban areas had their own pastor, their own leader. He was called a bishop. So you had the Bishop of Milan or the Bishop of Jerusalem or the Bishop of Rome or the Bishop of Antioch. These major urban areas all had leaders called bishops. So whenever a theological controversy arose, the question was, how do we resolve it? How do we answer these deep theological questions? So the leaders of the church looked back to the scripture in the book of Acts, Acts 15, and what, the, the, what they discovered was that the church in its very first theological controversy called a council of the leaders of the church to answer the theological question. So Constantine, in AD 325, he convened the very first one of those. You remember we talked about that, the Council of Nicaea, you remember? And here is the question at the time. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The question on the table was, what is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? You remember that? And we talked about the answer was given at Nicaea, homoousios, not homoousios. God the Father and God the Son are of the same essence, homoousios. 
And so the decision was made at Nicaea that the Christian church believed in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And that, that God the Father and God the Son are of the same essence. And so Christians are Trinitarian in their understanding of God. Here's what's interesting about the Council of Nicaea. We're not really sure who all was in attendance. We have a record of the names of many of the bishops that were there. But tradition says that St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra, was in attendance. St. Nicholas was a bishop in Turkey. You know, he gets a lot of play this time of year across the world. There's another tradition about St. Nicholas, though. You remember the original televangelist, Arius? You remember him? He was a heretic. He didn't believe in that eternal begottenness of the Son of God. According to tradition, we don't know that this really happened, but this is what tradition tells us, that in the meetings and the proceedings of the council that St. Nicholas was so upset with the heresy of Arius that he got up from his seat, went to Arius, and slapped him in the face. Now, we don't know if that really happened. Makes me feel a whole lot better about Santa Claus, I'll have to say, but nevertheless... St. Nicholas's feast day is sometimes referred to as slap a heretic day, but you can look that all up for yourself. So the next major controversy though, once that was resolved, here's the next controversy. If we believe that God the Father and God the Son are of the same essence, then what do we believe about the incarnation? How do we explain that? That's the next part of this conversation is actually completing the question about the essence of God the Son. Now the question on the table is about the nature of God the Son. In other words, it's the fleshing out of the theology of the incarnation. Did y'all notice how I did that little theological humor there, the fleshing out of the incarnation? Okay, it, it played well in my study. It didn't land well here, but anyway, it's okay. <laughs> um, in other words, here's the question about the incarnation. Is Jesus fully God and fully man? Is that really what Christians believe? Is that really even possible? That's the theological question. Now, there were pastors who were trying to grasp the mystery of it in those days. So, for example, John 1 settled at Nicaea. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. Nicaea settles that. Same essence. What about verse 14? The word became flesh. How did that happen? That's the next question. So theologians, pastors, bishops, they grapple with it. Some of them did the very same thing Arius did. They made up little ditties that people in the street could repeat and they could quote what these pastors were teaching. There were some bishops who said Jesus only had one nature and it was completely divine. He's the son of God. There were other bishops who said no. He had two natures, obviously. He had the, a divine nature, had a human nature, but once he became an adult, the divine nature overtook the human nature because obviously the divine nature could not suffer, die on a cross experience pain and hunger. So, so in his adulthood, the, the 
the uh, divine nature overtakes the human nature. There were other theologians who said, no, these two natures are separate. Actually, he's two persons just in one body. And there were other theologians who said, no, all of those are insufficient. They're, they're actually heretical. They don't really fully grasp the incarnation because the doctrine of salvation is at stake. How can Jesus fully redeem humanity if he's not fully human? How can he be the son of God if he's not fully God? And so there were other pastors who said, there are two natures, but they're complete and whole in and of themselves, but there's only one person. Well, the pastors were debating each other. So finally, the emperor in Constantinople said, enough. I want you pastors to come together and answer this question, just like they've done in the past. Answer the question, what is the nature of Christ? Is he two persons? Is he a divine person? Answer this for the church, because so much is at stake. So 400 bishops came together in AD 451 in a town called Chalcedon, right outside of Constantinople. And the major bishops all came. The leading bishops of the day were in four major areas, Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch. Those were the four most influential bishops. The bishop in Rome, Leo, decided not to come, but he sent his emissaries. He also sent a letter prior to this meeting because he was so concerned about this particular council. He was worried about what he believed to be heretical teaching. Here's what was fascinating, y'all. One of the theologians, the Bishop of Constantinople, where the emperor lived. Are y'all with me? The Bishop of Constantinople was named Nestorius. And Nestorius struggled with the incarnation. He struggled with this understanding of these two natures. And he bordered on teaching there were actually two persons, even though he never really actually said that, he had a hard time with this union, if you will, of these two natures. So much so that he had already been removed by the emperor before this council convened, and yet he still had great influence because he was the bishop of the capital of the empire, Constantinople. Are y'all still with me? Kind of. Well, let me tell you what happened. The bishops got together and said, here's the answer. And I wanna read it to you this morning. I'm gonna read it to you in English, not in Greek. But the reason I want to read it to you is because this is called the Chalcedonian definition. And this particular decision answers the orthodox interpretation of the incarnation. And ever since, it didn't resolve everything, there were still some divisions and questions, but ever since, orthodox Catholics and Protestants have embraced this understanding of the incarnation. So let me read it to you. This is from AD 451. We all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ, one in the same Son, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, or without separation. The distinction of two natures being in no way abolished because of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person. This was the answer. In other words, two natures, complete, 
distinct, whole, coming together in a mysterious union, if you will, to form one person. The reason this is important, you know, it may seem like a, a, something that's, that's uh, splitting theological hairs, but it's anything but that. In other words, the Council of Chalcedon decided Jesus Christ is fully God, he is fully man, it is mysterious, it is deep, but it guarantees our salvation. Humanity has been redeemed by the one and only God-man and that is Jesus Christ. He's the most unique human who has ever lived. Now, why is that important today? You know why it's important today? Because Americans today are confused by this doctrine. Even American Christians are. Lifeway has just published research from the fall of this year, and they asked Americans this question. Do you believe in the pre-existence of Christ? Do you believe that Christ was in existence prior to the birth of Jesus at Bethlehem? Do you know that 60% of Americans said no? 60% of Americans said we don't believe in the pre-existence of Christ. Now, as alarming as that is, it doesn't bother me too much because I don't expect Americans in general to be astute theologians. However, Christians were asked the same question. And in order to qualify for this research, you had to say you attend your church at least four times a month. I'm not even gonna ask how many of y'all that rules out, but at least four times a month, do you believe in the pre-existence of Christ? Only 63% of them said yes. That means almost 40% of active Christians in this survey said the pre-existence of Christ, no. Wow, that's why y'all, it is so important to teach theology in our churches. Because at First Baptist Arlington, we are going to celebrate Christmas as theologically orthodox Christians. We are Trinitarian. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We believe that God is eternal. We believe in John 1 verse 1. We also believe in John 1 verse 14. We believe that God the Son is eternal, God the Father, God the Spirit, the Trinity is eternal. We believe that the, in the preexistence of Christ, the Word of God is there in the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, John says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God, His Word, His Spirit. We believe in the eternity of the Godhead, so we're gonna celebrate Christmas correctly. So what is it that we celebrate at Christmas? Well, we believe that Jesus, Jesus, Santa, gifts, I'm not sure what all we sell it. I didn't hear that answer, okay. But you know what? Here's what the Bible teaches. He is greater. Jesus is greater. Pick somebody. He's greater than John the Baptist. He's greater than Moses. I mean, what does the apostle John say? John says in verse 15, he says, John the Baptist talked about him. But look what John the Baptist said. He said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. <laughs> John the Baptist believed in the preexistent Christ. What about Moses? He's greater 
than Moses. Now you want to offend a group of Jews in the first century, say that. And that's exactly what John said. Look at verse 17. He says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Grace, truth, glory. That's what we encounter in Jesus. Grace and truth, verse 14. The Bible tells us that when he came, notice what it says, we've seen his glory. He said he was full of grace and truth. Verse 17, grace and truth revealed through Jesus. As Christians, we believe in grace, but we also believe in truth. We believe in truth, but we also believe in grace. And somehow we, we live in the tension of those two realities because they've been embodied in none other than Jesus himself, who's God in the flesh. So why would it surprise us that John said we also saw his glory? <laughs> because he lived among us, he tabernacled among us, and whenever God lives among you, there's going to be glory because God's glory is with him everywhere. And he says, we saw his glory, where the glory of Jesus was on display in a unique way. It was revealed in his miracles, yes. But it's also revealed in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection. Jesus was glorified by God even on the cross. So he's greater than John the Baptist. He's greater than anybody who's ever lived. He's greater than Moses. You remember what Moses said one time to God? Moses said, God, I want to see you. And God said, no. You can't handle it. You remember? Moses said, I want to see you. God said, no. So Moses never saw God. But look at verse 18. Nobody's ever seen God, not even Moses, except for the Son of God. As a matter of fact, he is God. <laughs> not only has he seen God, he is God, and he reveals God to us. He has made him known, the text says. So what are we doing at Christmas? You know what we're doing? We're celebrating the incarnation, the miracle of this truth that the word of God has become man. So you know what we do? We sing about it. We do, we sing about it. Get, get your hymnal there in front of you. Let's look at it. Look at hymn 103. That's our carol for the month. You know what we do? We sing about it. For some of y'all, the hymnal is this green book. <clears throat> look at page 103. And look what, look what we do. We sing our theology. You remember at Nicaea, we have already sung in the second verse, son of the father begotten, not created. That's Nicaea. Now let's sing Chalcedon, which really and truly we're singing John 1, 1 and John 1, 14. That's what we're really doing. But look at the last stanza. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. And then here is the incarnation. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, hallelujah. That's what we declare in this beautiful hymn. What are we saying? The word of God now appears in flesh. The word of God, are you kidding me? The word of God, think about that. The word of God, how powerful is the word of God? Well, the word of God is so powerful that when God speaks, he can create out of nothing just through his word. The word of God is all powerful. The word of God is there at creation. In fact, John says nothing was made unless God's word spoke it into existence. And now guess what happened? The word of God has become one of us. That means he's accomplished redemption for us. He can rescue us. He can forgive us for our sin. He is so powerful. He can change your 
life. He can heal you. He can redeem you. He can cleanse you. He can forgive you. And he can give you something that nobody else can give you. And that is a life on this earth with meaning and purpose and a life that will last forever. Hallelujah. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The word of God in flesh appearing. So guess what? We sing about it. We don't just sing about it. We do. We don't just sing about it. We live it. We give him our devotion. So guess what we do? We adore him. That's what we do. We adore him. Oh, come. Let us adore him. God has become flesh. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Praise God. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Father, we, once again, we, we bow before you in humility. We love you. We thank you so much for loving us. And we thank you, Lord, for Christmas. And I pray that we as Christians won't just somehow run roughshod through it, but that we'll pause and reflect on what it is we're celebrating. <laughs> Something has happened here in Bethlehem. <laughs> something unique, something eternal, something unprecedented. The Word of God has become flesh and dwelt among us. Oh Lord, pray that the reality of that will have its full effect on us and that you'll lead us as your people to adore him. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.